everyone and welcome to an episode of Everyday Black History. Uh, Happy Wednesday to everybody out there or hump day to everyone out there. As we move along in the month of March, um, this year 2022 is flying by very quickly. It's already what March 9th today. You know, rest in peace, Notorious B.I.G. You know, March 9th is Biggie Day, but as we uh, move along through this month of March and move along through this year, you see time is flying by. So hopefully this year is being kind to everyone out there listening. They're starting to ease up with, with all these restrictions and everything, craziness happening around the world and Russia and Ukraine, you know, our African brothers and sisters being left over there. But that's a whole other conversation. You know, that's a whole other conversation for another day but hopefully this year will get better not that it was horrible but hopefully it'll get better and um by the time the end of this year comes we'll be we'll be smiling again hopefully we can at least be optimistic but since it is march it is women's history month and on everyday black history we celebrate women all the time you don't need a month or a specific time of the year to tell us to celebrate women you know we shouldn't have to just like we don't need a month to tell us to celebrate black history you know that's why the name is everyday black history so but today since it is women women's history month and it's my um first uh first uh episode of the month um of march um of course i gotta do you know an episode on a woman um who definitely accomplished a lot in her life and who um you know set the who like you know uh, set the tone set the pace for uh black women doctors to follow ever since she was the first black woman to um be a practicing uh physician uh, a woman by the name a sister by the name of Rebecca Lee Crumpler Crumpler yes Rebecca Lee Crumpler is the first woman to actually be uh, a, a licensed medical professional in the United States she was a physician a nurse and an author um, she studied at you know prestigious schools medical schools of her time in the 1800s um, and yes, yeah, she holds the distinction as being the first African-American woman to become a doctor of medicine in the United States. Uh, she was one of the first female phys- physician authors in the 19th century. She published a book, which we'll talk about later, a book of medical discourses. And uh, the book has two parts. It covers prevention um, and cure and the cure of different uh, infantile uh, complaints and also the life and growth of human beings. The book was dedicated to nurses and mothers, and it focused on uh, maternal and pediatric medical care. It was one of the first, among the first publications written by a, uh, an African-American, you know, about medicine. So, you know, Re- Rebecca Lee Crumpler, you know, she is definitely somebody who more people should know about. Um, she graduated from medical school when, at a time when there were very few uh, African Americans who were even allowed to attend uh, medical schools or even publish books. Um, she began practicing in Boston, serving uh, poor women and children. And she even, uh, um, uh, after the Civil War, she was able to work with um, uh, freed slaves and, 
and, and black veterans to give them the proper care. We'll talk about all that um, in a little bit. But a, as you can imagine, her being the first, because there, as, as we know, being the first is always is always the hardest. She was subject to intense racism and sexism while she practiced medicine. You know, I mean, this is during a time when 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 men believed that a man's brain was 10 percent bigger than a woman's brain on average. So you can imagine that her as a black woman, what she had to face and how hard it was for her. But she persevered despite all that and worked passionately. So we're just going to get into a little bit of uh, background information on her. She was born in 1831. 1831. She was born Rebecca Davis and um, she was born in Delaware. But she was raised in Pennsylvania by her aunt, her aunt who cared for uh, sick people in the town where they grew up, uh, where she grew up rather. Her aunt acted as the doctor in her community, which no doubt had a huge influence on her and helping her to want to you know, heal people. Now, she was inspired by her aunt after seeing that she was the one that everybody went to when they got sick. Uh, she soon after that moved to Charlestown, Massachusetts. Um, and uh, when she, at, at, in 1852, and then she worked there as a nurse before she applied and became accepted into the New England Female Medical College. Um, as we mentioned before, she was the only um, black woman who attended this school at that time. Now, from 1855 to 1864, she was employed as a nurse. And in 1860, she was um, accepted into the New England Female Medical College. And... Um, uh, she was able to go there because she won a tuition award from a scholarship fund, a scholarship fund that was started uh, by a local businessman. It was called the Wade Scholarship Fund, and that allowed her to be able to attend the school. Um, now, as we mentioned, it was rare for a woman or a or anyone black to uh, be admitted to medical schools during this time. But due to heavy demands of medical care for Civil War vets, there were more opportunities for women doctors and physicians. And because she was talented, she had a natural talent for it, uh, she was given a recommendation to attend the school by her supervising physician when she was a medical apprentice. So that year in the 1860s, 1860, the year 1860 um, exactly, uh, there were 50, over 54,000 physicians in the United States and only 300 of them were women. None of them were black women. So she was the first and only black woman who was in her class that was studying to be a physician. Now she graduated from the New England Female College in, in 1864 and uh, after completing three years of coursework, a thesis and a final oral examination in February of 1864. On March 1st, 1864, she was named by the Board of Trustees a Doctor of Medicine. Um, since at this time she was married to a, name, a man by the name of Wyatt Lee and so she identified as Miss Rebecca Lee at the time and um, she was the only black graduate and as we mentioned she was the country's first uh, black American woman to become a formally trained physician and when she first started to practice she practiced medicine in Boston uh, she um, as we mentioned earlier, she cared for the poor, poor black men, uh, women, children. Um, at the end of the Civil War, she moved to Richmond, believing that it would be uh, an ideal way for her to provide a missionary service, as well as to gain more experience learning about diseases that affected both women and children. She said of that time, 
She said, and I quote, During my stay there, nearly every hour was improved in that sphere of labor. The last quarter of the year 1866, I was enabled to have access each day to a very large number of the indigent and others of different classes in a population of over 30,000 colored. So she was able to help a lot of people out there in Richmond, Virginia with her skill um, in, in medicine. Um, she also worked for the Freedmen's Bureau to provide medical care for free slaves uh, who were denied care by white physicians. And she worked under uh, a man by the name of Orlando Brown while she was working at the Freedmen's Bureau. And, uh, but she was able to help freed slaves get medical care that were rejected by white physicians during the time. Even though they had fought in the war, um, they still, because of you know racism, they still didn't get the medical care that they needed. And she was there to, to provide that, her and many others, at the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, she was subject, as we talked about, to intense racism by both the administration and other physicians. And she had difficulty getting prescriptions filled. She was ignored by the male physicians. They even joked that the MD behind her name stood for mule driver. Mule driver. So you can imagine having to deal with that on a daily basis, how much that can uh, uh, take a toll. I mean, she knew it would be challenging, especially being the first woman, especially being the first the first black woman, excuse me, to be practicing medicine, she knew that it was going to be challenging, but she was resilient, she overcame the adversity, and she was able to, you know, do her job effectively. Uh, she then moved back to Boston in a, uh, uh, in, in a predominantly black community in, called Beacon Hill. Uh, her house, 67 Joy Street, is part of the Boston's Women's as far as the Boston Women's Heritage Trail. And when she lived out there on Joy Street, she practiced medicine and treated children. And a lot of the people there, you know, sometimes didn't even really have the ability to pay. But she was able to provide these services to people despite that, the people who needed it the most. But as mentioned, her house is on the Boston Women's Heritage Trail. Um, her house at 67 Joy Street. Now, she was able to have... Uh, um, participate in continued education um, from other places. She was accepted into um, other prestigious schools, the West New English and Classical School, the Massachusetts, where she was a special student in mathematics. She even taught in Wilmington beginning in the 1870s and in Newcastle, Delaware in 1876. Now, the book we mentioned earlier, A Book of Medical Discourses, she wrote that in 1883. And um, it was written from notes that she kept over the course of her medical career. And as we mentioned, it was dedicated to nurses and mothers, and it focused on the medical care of women and children. She presented this book to emphasize the possibilities of prevention, showing that um, any disease that you know a person had, there was a preventable, there was prevention for it. Uh, she recommended that women should study the mechanisms of human structure before becoming a nurse in order to better enable themselves to protect life. Um, and a lot of her medicine, a lot of her, uh, the advice that was in this book was was uh, like, like alternative medicine or homeopathy. But uh, she didn't say that because, you know, sometimes people may not take it serious if they know it's, it's an alternative form of medicine. But a lot of what she was saying in the book as far as, you know, treatments uh, for, for ailments were was uh, homeopathic remedies, you know, remedies that, you know, a lot of us 
you know, still used today. Um, her book was divided into two sections. One was for you know, infants and mitigating um, intestinal problems in infants. And the second part was focusing on the life and growth of, of, of uh, beings, the beginning of womanhood, and the prevention and cure of, mo- of uh, most of the distressing complaints of both sexes. In the book, she also uh, tied autobiographical details that contain political, social, and moral commentary. But uh, she was one of the few authors at the time, black women authors at the time, especially someone who wrote a book on, uh, on medicine. So uh, Rebecca Lee, you know, Crumpler, you know, she was doing a lot of firsts in her life. Uh, but but uh, her personal life, you know, before we even get to her personal life, the thing about her book that was interesting is that whenever there were black writers during the time who wrote, they always wrote um, in a way that it was written in the style of, of, of white male writers to give them all authentication, to make it you know more palatable. But she was able to introduce her own text and write in her own voice. And she was able to justify her work based on her authority as a physician. So that's, that was what was important about that book, was that she was able to write it in her own voice. Now, her personal life, as we mentioned, she was, she was, she was married first to a man by the name of Wyatt Lee. He was a Virginia native who was formerly enslaved. They got married in 1852. They had a son. Um, uh, well, actually, no. Um, it, it, her husband Wyatt had a son from a previous marriage. It was his second marriage and her first. Um, they had a, he had a son who died at the age of seven and that was one of the things that also motivated her to begin studying nursing um, for, for many years for the next eight years before she even went to uh, around the time when she went to school uh, she was a medical student when her first husband Wiley died of tuberculosis in 1863 and then she got married to a, a, a second time by the, a man, to a man by the name of Arthur Crumpler in uh, 1865, he also was formerly enslaved, but he escaped bondage um, from Southampton County, Virginia. And, uh, you know, he unfortunately, uh, you know, born, born and raised a slave. Uh, family was separated by slavery, never got to find out the whereabouts of his family. Uh, you know, you know, the horrors of slavery. But, uh, but he was able to escape bondage. And uh, they were married in, you know, in uh, 1865, and they were active members of their church, and they were married for many years. Uh, they had a home in Boston, um, uh, and they also had a daughter, Lizzie Sinclair Crumpler, who was born in uh, 1870. Uh, they were a respected couple. They respected. They were respected in their community. They had friends even in politics. A Massachusetts senator by the name of Charles Sumner, you know, uh, uh, Rebecca Lee Crumpler spoke at his uh, at the service for him when he died. She read a poem, so they were well respected in the community. Um, they had a lot of friends. People respected them. They were busy in the church, and especially because of her work with helping people, poor women and children, uh, being the first. You know, in the medical field for a black woman, like, no doubt she, you know, commanded respect, you know, everywhere she went. Now, unfortunately, she, I mean, of course, you know, we all have to die, and, you know, that's, you know, we're human. So she died in March 9th, which was today, in 1895. 
And now, I didn't plan this when I did this episode. You know, it just so happened that I realized just now as I said it, that she died on March 9th, 1865, in Farewell, Massachusetts. Um, she and her husband were, were both buried in uh, the Fairview uh, Cemetery. Fairview, Massachusetts, I'm sorry. They were both buried in the, at the Fairview Cemetery. And her husband died in uh, 1910, so he died quite a few years after she did, which is unique because usually the husband died first and then women always outlast men, you know, usually, typically, but she died in 1895, he died in 1910, and they were buried together. But the interesting thing is that they both uh, were buried in unmarked graves for 125 years. It wasn't until 2020, July 16th, that donations were collected and gravestones were created for the couple and even a a ceremony was held at the Fairview Cemetery uh, and and the gravestones were finally installed marking where she and her husband are buried but can you you imagine like all the work that she's done the important work she's done she was in an unmarked grave for over 125 years so that is why it's important for us to know about who people like Rebecca Lee Crumpler is you know it's important because her work, the work that she's did, the work that she's done is, you know, imagine how many people she's helped, you know, imagine how many people she's helped. So we want to make sure that her memory isn't forgotten, you know, the work she's done isn't forgotten. And so Rebecca Lee Crumpler, we salute you for your contribution to black history and black culture. So thank you once again for listening to this episode of Everyday Black History. Um, as mentioned, hopefully you'll enjoy the rest of your week. Hopefully, um, you know, things are going well. And if it's not, I pray that things get better. But we'll be coming at you with more Black History for the past, the present, and even the future. So stay tuned for the next episode.